0: everybody and welcome to episode 9 of season 2 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that peaked way too early with the cold opens. It seems like me being pistol whipped was the cultural highlight for 2021 for a lot of people.
1: (laughs) Judging by the feedback, tell me more about getting bitch-slapped by Guatemalan bandits, Alex. What's funny? What's funny is that like I have friend like Kate, my wife, has heard this story a billion times to the point now where I feel like I've told everybody all my stories, so I don't tell them anymore. And then all of a sudden, I get this text message from a friend being like, "You were held hostage in Guatemala. How do I not know this story?" So I guess yeah, I got like, I, I bring them out again. I
0: tweeted it, and people like you know people who I who I know don't necessarily listen to the podcast, but are friends of mine retweeted it like my friend Chris Chris Collins in Tokyo just wrote, Oh, period, my period, God, period. <laughs> and Chris Ratcliffe was really sweet. He said uh he said something like Just when I think I'm getting better at podcast marketing, listen to the first 10 seconds of the pod- of this podcast and you'll be you'll be gripped. <laughs> Which is really kind. Uh I didn't intend to 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 do that, it just worked out that way. So yeah, there you go. I guess I should go and get assaulted more often to get more. Have uh,
1: <laughs> thirty years of crippling to PTSD.
0: Yeah, that's fine. Totally worth the uh, little bump in uh, subscribers we got.
1: <laughs> oh, fun
0: stuff! But Guatemala was interesting. I I I've been trying to th- read a little bit more about the place, and of course, once you once you go down a content rabbit hole for a place and its food it just kind of opens up before you and it's a place I want to get back to that whole region. Belize is in the news at the moment for, for sort of mixed reasons. And that got me looking into, cause obviously they share a border with Guatemala, but mm-hmm. it's just Southern Mexico. And then that part of Central America uh, is just super interesting to me. And I can't wait to get out there and do it properly and
1: maybe get held up again. I don't know more podcast content. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I agree. I would definitely love to get down there as a fully formed adult. And it's funny when we were <laughs> looking into a, our, our baby moon before Logan was born, we were looking at a couple of different options. And one of the places we were looking at was, was Belize. Um, we ended up going to the Florida Keys just because of timing and flights and stuff like that, but definitely want to try. Belize is an interesting one. It's one of the only uh, Central American countries where English is ubiquitously smoke- spoken.
0: Yeah, it, it, because it was a British colony for a long time, and mm-hmm. that's what's in the news at the moment. Uh, there was, I guess there was some manslaughter trial going on, and it's reignited a debate about whether this sort of ancient death penalty that they have on the books but don't really use should be. And then in this article I was reading today in the paper, actually, it was talking about exactly what you just mentioned, that there's this near ubiquitous adoption of, of English as the first language, Spanish as the second language. Um so, yeah, I, I want to check that out too. I think one of our, Lisa Tindall's been there. Uh, mm. our, our friend who lives in Innsbruck, Austria, uh, is, uh, and was a fan too. So, definitely another place on the list. The, this ever growing list of places I cannot go. That's <laughs> a good book title. Uh, so, thank you guys for your love for the for the Guatemalan beatdown episode um, and retweets and all of that. But you, I don't even know, I, I, if you're eating, folks, Maybe stop eating for a second while Will describes this little culinary abortion that he found on the internet.
1: Yeah, so I think we've talked about this before, where we come across, and we still encourage you guys if you're in a weird country, weird country. That's so dismissive. A country that has weird approaches to to Americanized food. Let's put it that way. um, To send us what you what what you see, Alex. You know when he was last in Hong Kong uh, with the with the Domino's pizza that had like hot dogs baked into into the crust. Give me one second. My dog is losing his crap right now. Does that mean the dog has
0: diarrhea? That's not what I was talking about when I said you shouldn't be eating this. It's actually worse than dog diarrhea. Thank you, Pizza Hut.
1: Uh, yeah. So so per, per what Alex was saying about Hong Kong or oh, what he found in Hong Kong uh, about a few years back, uh, I saw this from the UK Pizza Hut uh, Facebook page. It is their new roast dinner pizza, English-style roast beef, sage and onion stuffing, roast potatoes, and a red wine gravy base. Best of British flavors all on a pizza. Now that's delivering. Jesus. Oh, Pizza Hut. Well, okay. So here's the thing about this.
0: This could have actually, you could have done this well, because if you think about sage and onion stuffing on a pizza, I could see that working, Mm -hmm. the flavors, but sliced roast potatoes, not okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, English style roast beef. I mean, I don't know what that means. I don't know. Like it's it, the only of, way
1: that it, yeah, the only way exactly the only way it would have worked is like almost like a slow roasted carnitas style.
0: Yeah, that would be okay. And then the red wine gravy base. Yeah, I think I might need to order this for science.
1: Yeah, I, I dumped it into our or into our one of our work slacks, and everyone was like, "I'm torn on this. I want to try it, and then I want to also not try it." And then, <laughs> then we brought we want somebody else we, to try it. Yeah, we also brought up the fact that um. Um. You know, there's the kebab pizzas that Domino's is doing and, you know, somebody on our forum said, if there's not, if I'm not drunk and there is a very nice Turkish man saying chili sauce boss, I don't want it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think, was it Andrew, our brother, when you posted that in the, in our group chat said, mentioned the kebab one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Donna kebab one, which again, like you can see in theory that working, but I think in practice, um. You know, the bar with those guys is already so low, not with on a kebab, love those guys with the big pizza chains here in the UK. But yeah, inter- global interpretations of quote unquote American food uh, is pretty hilarious.
1: And rather appropriate for the nation we're about to talk about.
0: Yes. Yes. I think we, we basically gave it away at the beginning, but we're going to do Hong Kong, which for the purposes of this conversation is its own entity. Yes, especially. And I think it's 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 uh, I don't know about uh, about we didn't do this on purpose. But today is June 5th. Yes, exactly. Which uh, for those of you, well, I'm sure, you know, was the was the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Think that's about as political as we're going to get in this podcast. This wasn't done on purpose. Um, but, you know, stay Hong strong. Kong Hong Kong is our home.
1: Therefore, it is our it is our nation
0: yeah and we're proud of it and very very protective of it. Yes. so this is this is going to be a big big episode. There's a lot to get through. It's a it's a such a broad palette you know from a canvas perspective and also from a food palette perspective to talk about. There's we, we want to do it justice, but before we get into it, I think uh well, it's been it's been 2 weeks. 2 weeks. Yeah, it's yeah. been 2 weeks. 2 weeks to, two weeks to the day since uh since we last recorded uh so i'm sure we've both eaten some deliciousness i know i have uh but what uh what perhaps more importantly saturday what twelve thirty? so it's after lunch yep you you have to be drinking something a little spicy a little potent
1: it is hotter than hell in in uh in denver colorado Got where I lived, uh, for, you know. Right now, and what's really interesting is because we're at five thousand two hundred eighty feet, um, the atmosphere is really thin, so the sun really bakes you. Um, so we were in Boulder this morning, um, which is about fifteen minutes down the road, uh, at their farmers market, walking around there, um, taking in all the goods. Bought some, bought some, some wine, bought some, uh, some asparagus. Bought some some ground meat, but I bought there was a cheese uh, purveyor there that I looked. I uh, was like, okay, let's have a chat. I'm not feeling uh, funkified cheese right now. I want something creamy. Want something buttery. Something that I can go with everything. And the guy goes, got just the thing for for you. Uh, it's a company called Haystack Mountain. Is the artisanal goat cheese purveyor, but the one that he he set me up with, it was called Buttercup, and it's 80% cow milk, 20% goat milk, and it's got the consistency of like, not a smoked, but like a regular Gouda, so somewhat Mm, pliable, but very, very good, like European cheese undertones, wonderful, and so I bought that and had that with lunch just now, fantastic.
0: Nice. What are you drinking, though? That's all I care about.
1: Oh, I am drinking. Oh shit! Sorry. Yeah, I went the wrong way with that one. Um, I love it though. I, yes, I am drinking uh, Mama's Little Yellow Pills by Oscar <laughs> Blues Brewery. Oscar Blues is a company, a brewery based. What out a of,
0: cool can!
1: It's like 1970s like style like TV like, titles. Yeah, exactly. TV titles by Oscar Blues Brewing. It's a Bohemian Pilsner, about five percent. <laughs> And uh, it's, yeah, it's got that nice crispness with like a sweet overtone. I like pilsners, especially when it's hotter than hell out. There's a, a a trend going around right now making fun of people that like IPAs, and it's like two guys talking to us like, "Hey, try this. Isn't this awful? Yeah, <laughs> awesome." <laughs> I saw that. Uh, is it a local beer for local people? I mean, you can get this all the way to the West Coast, but it—I mean—Oscar Blues is a relatively well-known big brewery, but it's you know. They have a tasting room in Boulder as well. But I bought this at the local grocery store. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. That's very yeah. local then. So, so alcohol first. What are you drinking? Or not necessarily alcohol. What are you drinking?
0: What am I – yeah. Thank you for assuming that I'm drinking alcohol. I am drinking a bottle of 2010 Dom Perignon. My brother is a pimp. <laughs> yes. Uh, for those of you that don't know my yes I have a side business. no, I uh, have had this on ice for a long time um, celebrating uh, the conclusion of something that I, I won't get into now but uh, I've been waiting for it for a long time to be to be done and it is and I bought this as a treat to myself for when it did happen and it happened last week and I can't get it open. <laughs> but I've had it on ice and I've been looking forward to this and it seemed like today during this was an appropriate juncture to open this. There you go. Yay, Mazel. Mazel, yeah, it's a goddamn time. Anyway, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I haven't had Dom, okay, I had it on an Emirates flight, but it doesn't really count because they paid for it. I haven't had, I bought an an Ot 6 for Christmas a few years ago. And back into my makeshift ice bucket. Uh, and I now use the box to store my Nintendo Entertainment System games. <laughs> <laughs> Alex's ice yeah. bucket is a, is, is a potty. <laughs> mm, that would have been a way better idea. No, it's not. It's, um, it's a Le Creuset um, custard bowl. Yeah. Nice. filled with ice that uh, my, my late dear friend Fergie gave me um, for my birthday years ago. Anyway, oh, f- that's good. <laughs> Vintage champagne, you know? Anyway. Yeah. Cheers. Oh. Mm. I just going to drink the whole bottle right now.
1: It begins! Uh, uh, give me that! Stop it, Barney, no! Barney, no! No! Barty, uh, give me no. no! 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 la No! No!
0: So yeah, that that's delicious. That's absolutely delicious. And I've been looking forward to that for a long time in so many ways. What I ate. So I took our mother to California recently, and subsequently, she's now with you. That's what that screaming in the background is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I got to, I took her to California so she could go spend some time with our friends and family in in Livermore, uh, and I got to spend time with my girlfriend Megan, and she took me to a place in Oakland
1: called Shinmai, mm-hmm. which you hadn't heard
0: of. Had you I heard had of not, I of no, no. I
1: was what I said was it was not the ramen place I go to in Oakland. So it
0: it, it, it is a ramen bar. So they've got a, a like a ramen bar. It's kind of an industrial. Um,
1: interior. It's downtown in
0: Oakland. Correct. Yeah, it's like a couple of blocks uh, west of the Fox Theater, if you know Oakland, uh-huh. and they had just reopened for in what is, indoor dining, and it's all you know small plate stuff. But I sent you and Greg the menu immediately when I looked at the menu. I was like, Greg would love this place. I say that a lot <laughs> about places, <laughs> but it was it was and and I was saying this to. I think Megan actually yesterday, and some a couple of other people when I was describing this place, it's really, really good, but not purely Japanese, but not silly fusion. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, they've got stuff like a um, Scottish salmon gem salad. They've got an aged mochi oyster, but they've got you know, nankatsu um, karage, which is chicken car- f- deep fried chicken cartilage, uh-huh. vegetable tempura. Um, they had a wild gem salad that was with with topped with um, dried pork flakes, parmesan, and a cherry radish. It was all absolutely unbelievable. They had a hamachi sashimi. I made Megan try um, the fish eggs for the first time. She was a trooper, but I didn't like it. That's a, <laughs> an acquired taste. I found Tibiko. Um I quite like it.
1: Did I it? like. Row, Yeah but me if too. it's like been if it's been what's the word I'm looking for aged or dried it becomes a little too much for me
0: No this was fresh and they were the they were um like the pearls pearl big dog Oh yeah. okay and it sat so this hamachi sashimi was like it had a, a shisu ponzo and it had uh on top of a seaweed salad absolutely delicious but the best thing they did was takoyaki which if you remember from Osaka, and I've talked about this in the past, is the deep fried octopus. They described it as a donut, but it's like a ball mm-hmm. um, with a dashi powder on top and then onions and the barbecue sauce and then the um,
1: Not dissimilar the... to a treat that we'll be talking about in, the, in, in this episode.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then with the with the dried tuna flakes on top. It, it In itself, it was good. But what they did was Takoyaki Roulette. So one of the five is stuffed with ghost peppers. Oh yeah. And so I I was like, I, I just saw Takoyaki and ordered them. Um, and actually, so we ordered, I think we ordered six and two of them had the ghost peppers in it. And you know, Megan tried them. she' never had them before. she she liked them. But I got both of the ghost pepper ones, (laughs) and they were, you know, they weren't that weapons grade, but they were, they were really just. And I think the point of this long and rambling story is, if you're gonna do something gimmicky like that, the base product has to be good to start with. You can't do frozen takoyaki and then do something like that to make to to take people's mind off the fact that the takoyaki was crap. They had to be really good takoyaki with this twist. And that was the whole essence of this menu,
1: Mm -hmm. which was – There's a place that I go to, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's right off of Rockridge uh, in Oakland, in sort of the Rockridge-Bart station that I used to go with Keith. And they did like – you know they were a proper ramen place, but then did other stuff. And they did like a dirty duck egg – uh and pork rice which is like you know complete fusion but you know they did it right but to your point it's almost like completely different cuisines but there's been this vogue of like poutine like high-end poutine or or like you know fancy poutine and they they're they're starting from shit fries And like, yeah, they're they're like frozen fries that then they're like, it's just not good. Like, don't do that. Get your fries right first, then start putting all your extras on it. If you can't do good fries, cheese curds, you know, gravy, um, and sometimes bacon, uh, then don't do anything else. Like, you know, it's just not worth it.
0: Yeah, you have to be, you have to be good at it. And that's that I'd never actually thought about that as a sort of. Demarcation of quality in a restaurant until I'd had this experience because it could have been stupid, but actually it worked really well. So yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to taking my eldest son there, who's a takoyaki freak uh, and a spice freak. So this summer when I'm over there, we're going to take him there. But we have a lot to cover with Hong
1: Kong, our our beloved and precious Hong Kong. So we moved there in 1989, correct from from San Francisco. I was I was two and a half years old, um, and while technically we only lived there 11 years as in like actually having a physical home there, we were there. Like I would go back multiple times a year. Our mom was a, was a citizen. I was supposed to be a citizen. Um, and I I went my
0: ID card somewhere.
1: I did all my paperwork. Um, and at the last, uh, final approval process meeting, I yacked over the immigration officer.
0: Oh, I remember that. And then, yeah. the, then when you had the second meeting scheduled, there was a huge typhoon that blew out all the windows in Immigration Tower and mm-hmm. couldn't. Yeah. So and then now you're here. You are stateless. Yes, exactly. Um, so we lived. The Jason
1: Bourne of podcast hosting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, we lived the first third in the New Territories in the middle of nowhere when it originally, when we first moved there, we lived in an area called Clearwater Bay. And a lot of people know Clearwater Bay, but like we lived on like the other side of town from Clearwater Bay in a bay called, uh, or off a road called Portio Portia, Which was next to the Clearwater Bay Golf and Country Club, Um, but it was like your water was from a well. I mean, pumped into the houses. Um, You had to watch out for snakes and wild dogs. Our dog went missing one day and was found in a wild dog cage. And then the second half, the second two thirds, we lived in the most urban area you could possibly live. We lived on the peak and like looking down onto the Hong Kong Stadium. We're in Causeway Bay.
0: Yeah, Causeway Bay Happy. If you know Hong Kong, we were in between Long Chung Gap Road and base and Happy Valley Road. On yeah, the Broadway yeah, Road so
1: ran up the up the, the hill to up Long Night
0: Gap Road. Uh, and I, you know, I, it delights me to think there's one or two people going, "Oh yeah, I know exactly where that is." Because <laughs> they will. Um, Long Chung Gap Road kind of runs along one of the the ridge lines of the uh, of the peak behind uh, behind Hong Kong. As a, as a as a city on the island, what's interesting b- before we get into the specifics of Hong Kong cuisine as a cohort, if you will, if you consider China as a physical landmass, and let's not get into geopolitics here, as a physical landmass, it is gargantuan. Mm-hmm. You know, it stretches from you know the the the, the well now the southern southeastern Moon Point most point, I guess, is sort of Macau, Hainan Island, that type of area. And then, you know, the Northwest, where you're up against Russia, you know, and this is a 1000s and 1000s and 1000s of miles. So climate changes, um, soil, everything changes tastes, availability of produce. Hong Kong has maintained this very clear identity. Of 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 what is describable as Hong Kong or Cantonese, which is predominantly Hong Kong, and then into Shenzhen a little bit, uh, I you know language
1: and food, mm-hmm. which is which is fascinating to me that it's that it's, and this you know, so this it, is the thing. The, one of the thing one of the things that bugs me about you know people's misconceptions or whatever, is that nine times out of ten, when somebody in a Western country is saying, "Oh, that person is Chinese," they're actually Cantonese. Like the biggest, exp- until recently, the biggest export of people were from the Canton region, the Cantonese region, the the, the um, Hong Kong region. Like if you were to go to a your, your local Chinese restaurant in whatever town you're in, the, the likelihood is the first person that set it up was from the Canton Cantonese, was Cantonese. And if you're yes. hearing Chinese being spoken in your local city in, in the Western world, I can almost bet, you know, Seven times out of ten, it will be Cantonese, not Putong wild Mandarin. Um, it, I don't know why. I think it's because of the connection to the British. You know that they were able to be a little bit more. You know they traveled more or they emigrated more. But there's so many people that like conflate Chinese with Cantonese, and they assume yeah. that all the Chinese people in the world or outside of the outside of Asia are they think they're mainland Chinese, but they're Cantonese.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you look, you know, you. You look to somewhere like San Francisco, which is one of the oldest and biggest Chinatowns uh, in the world, you will invariably hear, if it's a multi-generational family, Cantonese being spoken for that yep. exact reason. So you're looking at Guangdong, which is the the the, the coastal province that, in, that butts up against Hong Kong as a special administrative region. It's you know, about 70,000 square miles, it, it has. So it, what's interesting, and then we'll, we'll get into the food, I promise is that Hong Kong has been a key trading port for centuries, you know, officially and unofficially, opium wars, Taipan, British uh, colonialism for 99 years. And then yeah, as the economic powerhouse and, and manufacturing powerhouse that it is today, Shenzhen over the border, Fifteen years ago was a sleepy, grotty manufacturing
1: mm-hmm.
0: outpost. Now it's about five times the size of Hong Kong in terms of population. So yeah. through its history, through the definition of its culture and its language, I mean, not to not to kind of throw out places like Guangzhou, which are big big Chinese anchor trading cities, Hong Kong was the influencer. In the old use of that word, not in the bastardized internet dickhead use of that word (laughs) for that entire region in terms of language and adoption and food. And most importantly, the broadcast and export of all of those things, like you mentioned, language, food, custom, culture to every
1: corner of the world. And, and yeah, Absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of people are pulling up roots and, and settling, especially broadcast rights. And and like, um, my company is a multinational company. And 10, 15 years ago, the Asia base would have been Hong Kong. It's Singapore now. Um, that's happening yeah, a lot. That
0: is happening a lot. And so, I, which in a way is, is interesting, because now you're getting this new wave of the export of, of Hong Kong culture, which is so blended now and influenced by other cultures in uh in in the broader kind of eastern asia um mm-hmm. but but in terms of the food
1: yeah did you were you aware of the if we're looking at uh, um china as a as a contiguous landmass were you aware of the eight chinese trad like official It's almost like in the US, you have your Southwest style, your Southern style, your soul food, your New England style, you know, China has that as well. And they have eight of them that are divided based on, um, you know, uh, availability of of specific items, uh, cultural impact, and then, you know, geographic, because Mm -hmm. in the South, you're more likely to see rice and then in the North, you're more likely to see wheat based things like noodles. So you must've seen these before, right?
0: I only knew about this. Thanks to Kyle at Untour Food Tours, who who was in our Shanghai episode, and he did a great job of explaining all of this. And, you know, you've you've described it beautifully. And Cantonese is one of those eight cuisines, those modern. Yeah, so cuisines. there's
1: there's eight of them, uh, and I'll run through them. And the ones that people know, I'll, I'll, I'll call out because this is interesting the ones that they get exported. So you've got uh, Anhu, which is the mountain region. Um, so, you know, much more hearty compared to Cantonese. It's a lot more stews. Fujian, which is more the coastal, a lot more bamboo shoots and mushrooms, think almost like the Mediterranean for China. Um, Huan, Hunan, uh, Jingsu, Shandong, which Shangdon's up north um uh, szechuan which is the one that uh, besides cantonese is probably the most ubiquitous yeah. and is famous like when people think of chinese food they go oh it's too spicy no they are only talking szechuan about szechuan when it comes to se- when it shandong comes to- is so shanghai
0: and all of the, the it's actually north of shanghai all of yeah. the wonderful food that you see in shanghai that we featured in our episode of attache a lot of that is either uh, Shandong or um, Fujian, and, you, and you, Shanghai's on the coast.
1: And then the last one besides Cantonese is Shijiang. Um, Xie, sh, I can never do the S H sound very. Uh, do it, do it, dusted, But Shijiang, um, and then Cantonese. But the the one that you're more likely to find. So if you're going to rank, if you're in any sort of you know Western country or country that has a lot of Chinese restaurants. Cantonese is going to be the most likely influence, then Sichuan and then Hunan. Those are the three yeah. that you're like, you know. I think there was a place called Hunan, Hunan Pal- Palace that wasn't too far from me. You know, those are the ones that you're likely to find. So if we're going to, you know, assuming the other ones for now, they all do play into, you know, as as um, Hong Kong was a trading area and a trading port and a strategic capital for a certain amount of time during the Mongol Empire. Uh, for the the remaining shrinking Chinese empire, the Song Dynasty, um, you know, a lot of these other types of food did flow through um, Cantonese China, but uh, the the big takeaway, the big standout about Cantonese food is that it's often considered to be the most balanced of 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 the Chinese food is it prides itself on the freshness of the ingredients, the quality Mm -hmm. of the ingredients compared to the other regions. There's not a lot of preserving going on because they can grow so much. So there's a lot of green in the food, a lot of, um, you know, uh, bok choy, spinach, um, uh, green onions um, that are used in the cooking of the food, heavily seasoned, but not spicy. And they do not garnish like the other places you won't see chopped greens on top of your plate. Um, but yeah, it's considered to be the most, I want say run of the mill. That's, that's so disparaging, but it's the most, you know, it's, it's, it's found Familiar. its place. Familiar. Yeah. Exactly. That's a better, that's a better word. Yeah. And
0: it's, you know, you have to remember Hong Kong is, is kind of a paradox because it is one of the most densely populated places on earth, but it's also two thirds countryside, if not more. Yeah, and it's got hundreds of outlying uninhabited outlying islands. There's a lot of green. It's got one of the most important ornithological wetlands in the world for migratory boards coming from Australia back up to uh, northern China and Japan. Uh, so there is this opportunity in this area to grow, and that and that extends obviously into into China beyond the the border as well. So. You've got this freshness the whole place is obviously surrounded by water so seafood is an influence as well but it's i think it's it, it's worth noting and i think we need to and I, I am perfectly happy to admit this when i lived there from you know 89 to whenever you know that included a year of going to school there and then boarding school in the uk but coming back often and then working there for a couple of years i wasn't exactly an adventurous eater
1: no, no.
0: So I didn't even scratch the freaking surface. Our parents, God love them, are not adventurous eaters at all. Uh, it took me to get you know into my 30s before I was like, oh my God, actually food is pretty great. And then I can't
1: stop eating. We were eating dinner last night and we were still talking about the episode and I was talking about how I became much more um, receptive to to bounty of Chinese food or Cantonese food, you know, after we had left, yes, we, there were things that we ate that we really enjoyed the influences of, um, the other cultures, Asian cultures in there. Like the Filipino culture is massive and, oh, and Southeast yeah. Asian food is, is massive as well. But what it reminded us, cause it, so basically when we were, when we first moved there and for my younger ages, um, like I said, we lived in Clearwater Bay, which is in the new territories. Our nearest big town was Sai um and we would go into Saigon a lot for for meals and i remember going to you know one of the the famous uh you know fish restaurants that you know they have the the aquarium basically next to your seat and you pick what yeah. you want and they decide how they want to cook it for you basically and i took the when i took the boys to hong kong um my buddies astro keith and alex to hong kong you know we made a special point to go out to Sai Kung and do all these things and and what was funny was that uh, i remember this vividly and mom sort of backed it up was when going there mom would smuggle in uh, a hot dog in some paper towel and like <laughs> hand that to me under the table at like age six or seven you know, which is so oh ridiculous God, just look I at your kids that. your kids are eating like dumplings and oct- octopus balls and you know everything at the age of like five through you know all the way up to now
0: yeah i i you know, I th- it's, fu- it's, it's different though. I think it's – and I thought about this a lot as we came into this episode. When you live somewhere uh, that's not where you're from, you're, you know, you're an expat, you want the things that remind you of where you've come from, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's often the case. Like, you know, you want – when I lived in California, you know, I wanted a Sunday roast. I wanted English cheddar. When I had, like, life-changing Mexican food, you know, all over – you know around around me and, and you know, basically anything i wanted in california so i can see why you know we would the places that we went out to eat were like italian joints and pizza and barbecue you know like um what the dan ryan's the place? dan ryan's chicago grill that's it in in ocean terminal uh places like that so i can kind of understand but we never were really exposed we were exposed to We didn't ramp up as kids, you know, to like try some fried rice, try some this, and now have, you know, the gizzards and things like
1: that. And no offense to mom and dad, but it was kind of mom and dad's fault because I remember being at a banquet, a Chinese banquet, for something to do with dad's work. And for some reason I wasn't sitting on their table, sitting next to them. And I went over to dad like I just grabbed what I thought looked like something I liked. And I was like, Hey, this is really good. This is this chicken leg is really good. Mom I remember mom whispering to dad. Don't tell them it's like – it's minced shrimp on a sugar cane. <laughs> like Yeah, you know, oh, that's yeah, classic. And then there was the other one which was like, this beef is really good. And it was unagi. Yeah, that was me and your brother. Yeah.
0: We're like, oh, no, we'll eat it. Eat it. It's just sweet and sour pork. And yeah, it was uh, it
1: fresh water. Yeah. Uh,
0: delicious.
1: But that's the thing. My point is like if I didn't know what it was and you told me like you didn't – Going back, like Tashu Fan is one of my favorite thing, which is a type of uh, fried rice, like a pork fried rice. Um, and my friend Adam Raby, who he's half Chinese, half half European uh, English, um, you know, his mom would come over and make all this great food when I was a teenager living in his place during the summer. Um, and that was like we'd go out and he would order stuff for me. And as an older person in San Francisco uh, going to dim, uh, dim sum places with my friends who are Cantonese and them ordering stuff for us, it just, it, it, it removed the barrier of concern or what the hell is this? Cause my friend at work isn't going to want to see me, you know, up like not able to handle something. So there was guaylo choices that he made for us, but then there was some like, you know, Phoenix claws, which are, um, chicken feet.
0: Well, let, let's go into that. Let's, let's talk about, uh, dim sum. Okay. Because dim sum is probably the most famous and recognizable of all hong kong cantonese cuisine
1: mm-hmm.
0: it is a very very hong kong thing and you can find it anywhere now which is which is great because it's it's absolutely amazing it it well dim sum in cantonese means to touch your to touch heart to touch your heart mm-hmm. uh and it's it, I feel like everybody listening to this is probably familiar with it, but it's something you have either at, at, around breakfast or into a lazy Yum late cha. lunch type of thing. Yum cha, exactly. And it's basically, we, we, we did an episode on dim sum back in the first go around, and it, we described it as as Hong Kong style tapas, but that's not really doing it justice. And it's lots and lots of little small plates. It could be vegetables. It could be dumplings. It, it runs the gamut you go to these huge halls full of people and noise and there's ladies pushing and men sometimes pushing carts around with all manner of of these of these dishes like zhalong bao which is the the soup dumplings shenzhen which are fried the pork buns the char si pork buns which is what my son absolutely loves and you, you take it with tea. It's a very, very social affair. You're in the round tables. It is such a brunch. wonderful kind of brunchy. Yeah, exactly. Cacophonous experience. You can get good versions of it in every major city in the world. You've got places like Dintai Fung, which is not dim sum. It's Taiwanese. It's Taiwanese. It's uh, It's Wai Yang. Cuisine is it pretty close in, in in every city in 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 the in the big city in the world. It's such a great experience. You will, I promise, be able to find something that you like. But that's the, the reason that I
1: think that's such a great way to introduce people to Chinese food is to go to yeah. a dim sum place because the things that we're going to talk about in like going down the list uh, all in most Chinese or in Hong Kong based restaurants they specialize you're not going to go to somewhere like in Hong Kong that has like a Denny style 15 page menu. There's going to do like no. three things that they do and that's it. So like the dim sum is a good entry level because it has so many variations so that if you go to a clay pot rice place and you're not vibing on what they're throwing down, you're kind of screwed. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, yeah. Exactly. And so that's why I really, really enjoy the dim sum sp- perspective. It's also like it, it, it's a bit hard to do as a single, per- not a single person, as in like you know, you're not, you know, in a relationship. But going by yourself, it's kind of difficult to do a dim sum, I guess. Yeah, which is why you've now seen like these, and I found them in the
0: last time I was in Hong Kong. There are now these places that are open, you know, up well into the night to to cater to the nine to fiver, hmm. and you can you can go get the, do- the, the 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 dim sum staples without the sort of the ceremony and the social. And
1: also the assholeness. If you get, if you, it's like, you know, asking for a cappuccino after 10 o'clock in Italy is going to get you punched. Dim sum is generally never served past noon, but that these new companies have like gone done away with the social faux pas of that. Mm. So that you can find dim sum places in the evening. You can. Yeah. And you know, places like Din
0: Tai Fung, again, have sort of redefined that experience as well, which
1: isn't exclusive. It's more of a dumpling joint. So let's 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 back up a second because we'll, everything we're going to touch upon will have variations in in dim sum, but in your research and your understanding and your living there, what did you think was the national dish? I mean, now it's I know it's roast goose. I,
0: right. I would
1: say ro- so. Dim sum is
0: a is is too broad to be a national dish because it's so yeah, it's like many saying things. brunch is a national dish. It's not. Yeah, like, exactly. You can't do that. Exactly. And I think so. I it, and and the same with shumai, which we'll come on to. Uh, as well so roast goose i think is is probably um,
1: yeah so thank for me thankfully um the south china morning herald had took down its paywall so i could actually look without having to buy anything uh, and they were talking about that's a local newspa- newspaper newspaper uh, not morning post not herald yeah i said you're thinking the i got you know. held from um uh, but and they were talking about like you know we don't have an official one but most people consider roast goose to be the official one, which is fantastic. But I remember being there and so many people were saying that you can get roast goose everywhere, you know, that has geese, but something that is uniquely independently Hong Kong is typhoon crab, typhoon shelter crab, sorry. And so basically, for those who don't know the meteorological understandings of, of Hong Kong, Hong Kong is perfectly positioned with the wall warm weather and where it is in relation to the ocean to get batted every year with massive typhoons, which are basically hurricanes. Um, to the point where we used to have like, you know, you have earthquake drills and hurricane drills in the U S we had typhoon drills. Um, and yeah, as Alex mentioned, it takes out buildings. Um, and I remember that, The typhoon shelter crab and shrimp, they were basically when the fishing boats came into harbor to shelter during these big storms. And they all got together and sort of, you know, got all their food, a bit like Chapino in San Francisco, where they were just putting in all their bits and pieces and they were doing crab. And what it is, is it's deep fried crab with a metric crap ton. Of fried garlic, bean paste, and scallions all dumped onto Mm – and chilies, yeah, and dumped onto a plate. And there's like a shrimp variation of it as well, which I love that. It was one of my favorite things. I think it was invented in Aberdeen, which real quick, the geography, and we'll get onto this in a minute because it's really interesting. I got a question for you. But uh, the original Hong Kong was Hong Kong Island. And then throughout the 99 years, that the British ruled – they eked into mainland China and then were able to uh, take over what they call the new territories, which goes up into, into mainland China. Um, And Aberdeen is on the, is, is a, is a port on the, um, or Harbor, sorry, on on Hong Kong Island. Um, But yeah, you must've had it.
0: Yeah. In fact, um, one of my favorite, just Hong Kong Chinese food restaurants is under an overpass in Wan chai and they they specialize in it but i i never get it because it's usually it's, it's it's kind of quote-unquote market price and as soon as they see my guilo ass coming in it's like <laughs> the price triples fair enough make your money i don't care they have really really great food uh but yeah no i'm
1: i'm uh so for me it. I th- I understand roast goose but for me you can't replicate that scenario anywhere else in the world therefore to me that feels more like a national dish like you, there is no such thing as a ty- typhoon shelter in other countries well I mean the typhoon shelter is just the sort of the the origin the story yeah the genesis. Of,
0: yeah like like Shapino as well I think the with the roast goose it's it's and we'll, you know we should come on now rather elegantly to sumai which is uh, a, a broad, Cantonese term for, uh, roast meat, which, which charcoal is is famous for. Exactly. The charcoal is what makes it different. And we'll come on to the other ones, but from the roast goose perspective, it's the, the oven, which is, which is charcoal as, as you said, that gives it the crispy skin. And it's, it's harder now to do that because of, uh, uh, environmental regulations and, you know, uh, emissions and all of that the geese are fed on rice which is interesting a lot of it's imported um from from neighboring neighboring guangdong but it's it's absolutely d- delicious siu mai generally you have roast pork belly uh just pork which is char siu which is probably most famous duck and chicken it has a like almost invariably including the goose this honey uh sauce lacquer Lacquer is a perfect word for it, and gives you this deep, deep, crisp, sweet, hot flavor. You, it's served with on on a on a bowl of rice almost invariably, and it is life changingly good.
1: Well, with the duck as well, I think they do this with the goose. They also, and you can't replicate this at home, where they force air through the carcass to separate the fat, the subcutaneous fat, from the uh, yeah. skin to be able to create that sort of uh, roasting from the outside and frying from the inside. Um, and any anytime you've been to a Cantonese Chinatown or, or you've been to Hong Kong, you, you, these places are, you cannot miss them because you're walking past the, the, the place and they will have a glass front with these animals like cooked, hanging. And hanging, the thing that yeah. always freaked me out was like, yeah, you'd have your goose always with the heads on, duck, whatever, half a side of pork, and then the bright orangey yellow cuttlefish
0: yeah, the cuttlefish. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's what's interesting is, um, so my favorite, and I've I've talked about this ad nauseum on anybody, to anybody that will listen to me, but uh, in Wan Chai on Hennessy Road, Joy Hing roasted meat. Mm-hmm. I I and this is not an exaggeration or a lie. I book my hotels in Hong Kong depending on how close they are to Joy Hing, and I will sneak off in between meetings or filming to go and get a, what they call a combo, which is the chicken, the duck and, uh, uh, and the char siu on a rice mm. bowl.
1: And this is, this style is so uniquely Cantonese.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it's as Cantonese. As barbecue is to
1: the South of America, you know, char siu is to the South of Cantonese or South. Of uh, China. Absolutely. And it's,
0: it's it's a really good again it's it's an entry-level food it's roasted meat barbecued meat if you like ribs if you like any of that you will absolutely love sumai which is just roasted meat and there's so many great places around hong kong to get it as will said you know You'll see hanging birds in the window. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so before jumping into like one of the things that is, is so unique about Hong Kong, the the influences of literally every nation the, under the world, you know, there's some interesting uh, things that have happened in Hong Kong. I wanted to just touch on one more that is uh, uniquely Cantonese, sort of before, well before any outside influence, or ironically caused by an outside influence, and that was Poon Choi. Were you aware of this before? Did we, like, I feel like, like we celebrated. You know, we lived in a place that had a fishing village right up against us, and we used to go into the fishing village for Chinese operas and, and you know, just general markets and stuff like that. Um, I feel like they must have been serving this.
0: Yeah, I mean, we. It's well, describe what it is, and then
1: we can talk about its origins. Yeah, so it is a it is a feast dinner, and I'll give some of the history behind it. So, uh, if you have not watched it, it's worth watching. It's not the best thing in the world, but it is. fun is the Marco Polo TV show, you know, set in, uh, in like a thousand AD China. And what's his face from, um, from the it show, uh, it crowd is, <laughs> I'm going way off topic. I always forget his name that the Chinese guy who plays Genghis, uh, Khan, um, is, is, is an English actor. And I always forget his name. Anyway, it's about the Mongol, you know, empire taking over China and how they're fighting against the end of the Song Dynasty. And when the Mongols, you know, sort of um, captured most of mainland China, Song Dynasty retreated into Guangdong province, which would eventually become Hong Kong, and to the villages in Hong Kong to basically try and, you know, appease the royal Song Dynasty. They created this this um, feast, um, which is now, you know, Poon Choi. Um, which is a mixture of roasted you know, um, pork and, and fowl and fish. Uh, and it takes three days to make. Um, so the way that it works is on the first day, you take a trip into the mountains to gather the firewood, and it's got to be uh, chopped to a certain size. The second day – you collect all of the fresh ingredients, so any of the spices you may need. On the third day, you start stewing the pork, and then you layer it all on top of each other into this giant sort of you know, uh, platter that's to be served as sort of the celebration. Now, from what I understand, it's more of a, a New Year's thing than, than just yes. a, a day-to-day thing. But they That's use, where I've had it. Right. They use New lamb, parties. chicken, duck, abalone shark fin unfortunately not so much anymore uh prawn crab mushrooms fish balls squid eel skin, bean curd radish like all the things that you associate with this region they're, they're building this layered cacophony of chinese food oh it's it's
0: it's so good and i think if you get an opportunity to have a a, a a real version of it john it's harder to find than some of the other things that we've been describing
1: yeah but what was interesting and this brings me back to my question was like the 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 uh new territories versus the uh, to island like if i know that i want sort of yeah joy hing style that in on the island but like clay pot rice which is basically earthenware clay pots with like rice in it chinese sausage very salty but very good savory then I, i'd go into the new territories for that and pun Choi, new territories only basically um and there definitely seems to be even in this tiny little country but it is 10 million people um there is a north south divide as far as the kind of food that you'll find closer to the mainland versus the uh the, the island
0: yeah, and I think there's also a rural and urban thing going on here as well.
1: Yes, you know, I agree. The new agree.
0: territories are 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 traditionally, though certainly not anymore, rural, and you know, uh, Kowloon on the other side of the hills and and Hong Kong Island, of course, are uh, are much more urban. And then, of course, you have the outlying islands, which are which are subsistence fishing or were subsistence fishing now. They're,
1: yeah, we not, used not to so go much. to um... Chung Chau. Chung chow Yeah. You go out to Chung chow which is, you know, take a ferry out there. And that was a fishing hub. And like you go there, people, you know, tourists as well, go out there to specifically have their their amazing seafood. And I remember you and Mike Tyndall when you came to Hong Kong and Andrew went out there and you had like, you know, an old school camcorder, and there's you and and Mike Tyndall eating, you know, the local and Andrew sitting in the corner with a big Mac. With a big Mac, yeah. We were like 17, I think.
0: That's right. <laughs> oh, Chum Chau is great. Um, before we move on to snacks, and we told you this was going to be an in-depth episode. I wanted to talk about something that I actually never really explored when I lived there at all, but then kind of, and also almost derided, but now I've really come to appreciate, which is Cha Chanteng, which is the tea cafes, which is th- these weird... Casual, they're almost like you said earlier, they're like a Denny's or like a Joyful in Japan. Uh, and they have these really strange they, fusion Hong Kong style Western cuisine, which is they've gone like, oh, I heard this, low this, end this fusion, low end. Oh, absolutely. And wait until I tell you some of these things. Um, it's like they heard, like, I heard in like in America they eat this, but they kind of didn't get it right and mm. they just. I think it might look like like if someone described it to you without actually ab- being able to use, you know, the actual words for the ingredients, and then you were like, "Okay, I'll try and go make it." So, what like a traditional Hong Kong breakfast for a place in a cha chaan ting is uh, some macaroni noodles in a broth with a fried egg uh, in it, or and and either sausage,
1: ham, or spam. I think Bourdain
0: ate it, and I don't think he did. He did, did it and in,
1: also um, in a layover, it's uh,
0: not in the parts on um,
1: back to it. Crowd, um, Richard Ayoade did Travel Man, and oh, he took John. John Ham. He went to John, took John Ham to Hong Kong, and I, they yeah, did that as well. That. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit dismissive.
0: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of look at look at how weird all these foreigners are. Um, Time yeah. travel shows, which we as a nation in the UK are very good at producing um baked rice with cheese stir-fried spaghetti things things like that that were like where are you going with this uh actually never mind it's delicious i don't really care there's a big <laughs> one which
1: is just back to breakfast but they're eating it sort of for dinner is um there's hong kong style french toast as well yeah which is
0: western toast yeah yeah
1: exactly which the thing and look at these fat asses with their sugary toast
0: oh it looks beautiful it's like deep fried too and
1: right um, yeah exactly but it was their interpretation through. they took yeah. something that like obviously the french brought over or the americans brought over a lot of this was from the gi's during the second world war that they sort of built up it's almost like almost like if curry, if the development of what we know as curry never developed past like a guy throwing something together in a canteen um mm-hmm. you know that's sort of where these 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 yeah the korean sort of armies stopped. do Exactly, exactly like Korean Army's true. So yeah, we didn't really engage with these as those as much, but they knew, now have a very unique place and they're not seen as kitsch. They're part of like the daily salaryman's day. Yeah, absolutely. They're cheap, cheap as hell. They're available
0: everywhere, like places like Cafe de Corral, which is like the Hong Kong Denny's.
1: Um, oh yeah. But th- th- that's something that should be mentioned is like a lot of people see like going out in Hong Kong as being expensive. You can buy something for like a buck all the way up to like four hundred dollars, and you can find yeah. your 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 niche. And like, because of the space constraints that most of Hong Kong has, as far as like you, your living environment, there chances are you are not going to have that much space to be cooking at home a lot. No. So that's why there needs to be this abundance of cheap, good, um, you know, filling and 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 savory options everywhere you go. I think there's more restaurants, you know, more places that serve food in Hong Kong per capita than anywhere else in the world.
0: Yes, absolutely. 27,000 or something like that is, is the impressive number. And I think before we come on to the, to the drinks, I want to talk a little bit about street food because this is street food is where Hong Kong has been massively let down. Mm. Uh, You have for as long as Hong Kong has been around, uh, this this concept of of a dai pai dong, which mm-hmm. is basically a something that actually came from Guangdong, one of the few things that was imported, and it's basically an open air food stall, and they were everywhere. They were the the phrase came from just after the Second World War, after Hong Kong had been uh, liberated from from the Japanese. They are. They serve all manner of food, but traditionally things like curried fish balls, which are delicious, the cuttlefish that you were talking about, pineapple mm. buns. But here's the thing you also have wet markets, which is prepared food uh, and available food. You have uh, the prepared food markets and all that. But Hong Kong has really, really, in the last 20 years, clamped down on street food sellers.
1: I remember when we were still living there that the PSAs that would come on TVB Pearl or ATV World, being like, you know, don't buy don't from these people. Them. You'll yeah, die. they'd always
0: say, don't even eat at wet markets and all of that stuff. And this is where Singapore nailed it. What with with the with the hawker centers all over Singapore, which are government run, they are um, very clean, but they basically took. The people that were creating these these iconic dishes, like for Hong Kong, carved fish balls, giving them a little bit of an education, a consistent environment in which to operate that could be closely monitored for health and hygiene, and it, it it's exploded to the point where Bourdain wanted to bring it over to New York, you know, but Hong Kong just shut them down, and I think that's mm-hmm. a tragedy because now you know you want to get these egg waffles or the fish balls or anything like that it's much harder and much more expensive and probably not as good.
1: Yeah. And when I was last back in Hong Kong, you know, I went to I think this was most evident when I went to temple street. So temple street is a a very, very famous night market. If you ever want to buy like, you know, knockoff versions of anything. Um, But also, you know, there was a lot of good food purveyors there. And like when I went back last time, it was like, A third of the amount of of people yes there were still people selling you know Uh, meat on a stick um and and fish balls and and all those kind of fun stuff um but the thing that i think that they've really sort of lent into is that you're you're seeing a lot more um savory applications which are less likely to get you sick so like the egg waffles um red bean um yeah uh confections um boba tea you know that kind of stuff you can find on the street any way you want um and and that has become embraced by by hong kongers as well um it's
0: disappointing it was a massive misstep by hong kong local government
1: let's talk about drink yes so so national drinks um there really isn't one that is alcoholic, but there's definitely a few that are, that are, that are savory, not savory, that are uh confections and and drinks as well. So the, I think the most famous one, I think most people off the street would say that, that Hong Kong style milk tea mm. is, is probably the national drink.
0: Yeah, I, I think so too. It's, it's, as you've, you know, put in the notes here is a, is one of those intangible cu- cultural heritage of Hong Kong. Yeah. Because UNESCO of how even. it's. Yeah,
1: has said it's a convention for the safeguarding of an ICH. It,
0: yeah, and this is one of the few things that has that can be directly attributed to British colonial rule. Of yeah, because it was Kong. the tea
1: coming from Ceylon, as it was once known.
0: You know, if you think of an English kappa, which is black tea with milk and sugar, um, milk tea is that except it is evaporated or condensed condensed milk, milk yeah. like. Like kopi in Singapore coffee, um, although not as teeth destroyingly sweet. <laughs> um, and so s- s- silk stocking tea was so they used to do this practice of running, of filtering the tea through a lady's silk stocking so it was, it was, quote, as smooth as a lady's legs. They still use a, a mesh to strain it um, for the same kind of idea, but kind of like cold yeah, tea it, in India. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and that's something that's sort of become, you know, ubiquitous with uh, and associated with, with with Hong Kong.
1: It's good. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, which is sort of back to Alex's, you know, um, a bastardization of Americanized food as they as the end of the war, is yun uh, yung, uh, yeah. which is half coffee, half tea. Which yeah, like kopi cham in Malaysia. Yeah, and to the point where, like, um, Starbucks does young young uh, frappuccinos in Hong Kong. Does it really? Um, yeah, it's they're if they're not your vibe. Like I don't really like coffee. Not the biggest tea person, so maybe I like it or it'd be the worst of both worlds. But yeah, it's literally half coffee, half tea, um, and it actually is pretty pretty common. Um, and so you know the the, the teas are definitely. Something that is is very unique to to Hong Kong, and what is interesting is that again, if you ask the average person off the street and ask like you know what type of tea do they drink in China, I'm sure most people would say green tea, but this is all black tea. This is all you know, kappa style black tea. Yeah, and it so
0: in a dim sum joint, you're going to drink just you know the the, the traditional Chinese tea, obviously yep. no milk. This is like a is a completely different beast, yeah. Uh, and you'll get it uh, in the in the the tea cafes that I mentioned earlier with the with the Western fusion food. But that 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 is absolutely the drink of Hong Kong.
1: <laughs> um, well, let's talk alcohol for a second. So yes, they have brandy, wine, a uh, plum wine, and plum brandy, and snake you know, wine. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fun stuff like that. But really, both old school and very much in the new school, beer is at the heart of, of Hong Kong um, drinking, especially from the expat community as well. But um, the I was looking this up, the, the, the most consumed beer in, in Hong Kong. Did you know this before I put it in the notes? Uh, I'm, I haven't seen this, but I'm going to either go with Carlsberg or San Miguel. San Miguel, number one, uh, and uh, Carlsberg, number two. I only San I, Miguel well, I mean, by it, miles, number one, though. Because it's made in the Philippines, right? No, it's made in Hong Kong, but it is a what Filipino is company. The Hong Kong San Miguel factory is listed on the Hang Seng stock uh, index, um, <laughs> so that's how important it is to uh, to Hong Kong. And 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 those who don't know, San Miguel is a Filipino beer brought over by the Spanish, Cerveza style, um, and it's very very good. It sponsors literally everything. You you know, sides of buses, local soccer teams you know, everything is San Miguel. And then Carlsberg has a huge um, influence in in Hong Kong. It's what a lot of the expats were drinking pre this sort of beer revolution that happened in the last couple of years, which we'll get onto in a second. Uh, you're, you're in a scenario where those are your two big ones and the Hong Kong sevens, which is like the cultural, um, you know, it's like this, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the uh, the British... Uh, going out season, like the debutante mm-hmm. season, as it were, starts in Hong Kong with uh, with the uh, the rugby sevens in in the springtime. They literally thousands upon thousands of people descend upon Hong Kong for three days of drinking, and apparently there's a rugby game going on occasionally. Um, and the big the big beer companies uh, are out there in force. Um, but before jumping into the last one, um, did you know what Club Seven One One was? No. Okay, so if you were going out in Hong Kong on the island, where would you be going out, like Lan Kui to Fong. party? Lan Wan Kui Chai, Wan Chai, Wan Chai, is is party district. It's um, got this sort of curving street that runs up the hill and out uh, bars that like empty out into the streets. Um, you know, running up it, and much like European uh, or British, they they contain the laws are very very loose, so you can walk from place to place while drinking. But because these places are geared towards, you know, office workers and tourists and stuff like that, you know, you're paying, you know, 12 US dollars for a pint of beer kind of thing. It is not cheap. But every, you know, 200, 300 feet is uh, a convenience store, often the (laughs) 7-Eleven. And you can buy a six-pack of Carlsberg for about eight US dollars. So what you do is for every beer you have in, a, in an actual restaurant or a bar, you go to Club 711. Slam a and, tinny yeah. And slab-a-tinny. Um, <laughs> and, and that's how you survive as, a, as an impoverished, you know, gap year student or whatever you're doing, backpacker in Hong Kong. because You can find, as we're talking about, the low end and the high end. Um, but the, there's been this massive beer revolution over the last 10 years and this couple that have just amazing um, – uh, you know, brewing uh, facilities and doing some really, really interesting stuff. And I know that obviously you guys have talked about Betsy beer, um, which was yep. brewed specifically at the cafe for high altitude. Did you know the name of the company? I didn't know this until I looked it up. Hong Kong brewing company.
0: Guaylo beer. Is that what it's called? And they changed yes. it. Yeah. Cause it was yeah. made. It was a partnership with Hong Kong brewing company and they have some phenomenal beers
1: mm-hmm uh hong kong uh, sorry uh guailo for those who don't know just means white person um it literally, and, literally like, means pale ghost isn't it yeah and hakwai means black ghost I don't know. not the most pc thing in the world but you know um guailo you know people have sort of wear it like a, a a badge of honor these days um the guys who founded guailo or hong kong beer company as it was once known were two english guys who, who moved out there there's another one called typhoon brewing which uh has the only English cask ale style beer in the whole of South Asia, Southeast Asia. I mean, South uh, South Hong Kong, South China, uh, which is doing well. And so there's been this really big revolution. But beer is, and it's usually all uh, the most common will be lagers, just because of how hot mm-hmm. Hong Kong can get. You're looking at your lagers. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's there's no there's no Singapore sling. There's no sake. There's no you know, no. Uh, cab salve. Although there's a huge absolutely gargantuan wine market in hong kong and yeah and whiskey i think
0: the guy that has one of the most complete whiskey collections or scotch collections in the world
1: uh lives in hong kong well but yeah, it's basically you know what we want to do with the hong kong episode is like yeah we're going to touch upon a couple of the classic you know or or historical things but also talk a bit more about like what we were eating and what we realized we were missing out on when we were going back so by the, no means this is a complete thing we didn't even touch upon the Macau Portuguese influence on on Hong Kong food which is you know only an hour ferry away and is such an interesting study in how two different colonial powers approach two different you know states but um, you know I'm sure everybody has their has their favorite Cantonese style meal so let us know what it is right in tell us what you miss about Hong Kong because we all miss it, you know, desperately. One of my favorite things that I got into after going back fried mantis shrimp. That was one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah. Yeah. The food is just outstanding
0: in Hong Kong. I can't not describe that enough. It's just so good.
1: So good. So yeah. um, H. The next one is I. That's going to be, that's going to be an interesting one. We'll see what happens there. Oh, lots of op- lots of uh, options there. Big and small. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, before we sign off, there's a couple of interesting ones about this, and I was looking at the cheers. There's. They, did you know all of these? So Go I'm ahead, gonna. One. I'm, okay, so which one do you know? The, the one, one I think I you're about to say. Yeah. All right, so let's do this, and I'm going to come back and say all the other ones as well. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to close that point. Hell no,
0: this is the best part of the show.
1: <laughs> okay. So, Yambai means. Bai, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which means cheers, dry the cup. Then there's Jambai. There's Gonbai and Jambai. Uh, uh, jambai means drink cup, drink glass. Then there's Jamsing, which means drink to victory, which I think should be the best one. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's uh, Jinzao, which sounds more Mandarin. Um, which is to drink plenty to, to drink a penalty after refusing a drink when toasted. So it's just like bottoms up. And yeah. then I think there's the most, you know, the one I heard the most, which was let's get pissed, <laughs> which is all the expats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gone boy is the one that I know. Yeah. Jambai is also. Yeah. It's very similar to how you say it in Japanese. Yeah. But Yeah. And on that note, yeah. Go <laughs> bye.